The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself. Because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order? Cashback guru? Low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you. Because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store. Even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. So you own your own business. Got small ambitions for this business? Of course you don't. Got medium ambitions for this business? Of course you don't. Who has medium ambitions? You got big ambitions. If you're a growing business with big ambitions, you want to grow with Granger. Granger has the products, the services, and more importantly, the commitment you need. Total commitment. If you're a growing business, Granger's got your back. Call clickgranger.com or stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Podcast playing link alongside lead prospect writer James Anderson. Shout out to New Day, N E U D A E, for the song Comb Over, the intro song you just heard. We're going to be looking at James's latest farm futures piece, anticipating call updates. Be sure to check it out for yourself. slash pod for a free 10 day trial. No credit card required, no strings attached. Also, going to be grading out Master P, MP to Last Dawn. But first, James, I want to talk briefly about an exciting opportunity we have coming up. On Saturday, we're going to be representing Rotowire in the NFBC main event. Hashtag let us in. They, they did do that. And I'm very excited. 
uh, but kind of looking at that with a, with a little bit of a prospect twist, how many how many youngsters in the minors start the year in the minors do you think we end up with? Uh, probably probably fewer than I think you'd expect, just knowing where our allegiances kind of lie or where our fields of expertise are. I I don't know, maybe maybe we end up with like four four guys that are yeah. going to start the year in the minors, something like that. I mean, it's 30, 30 players on the roster, so uh, you don't want to get – it's kind of got – there's interesting rules where you can't add minor leaguers in season unless they had been – unless they've already been called up and sent back down or if they were drafted by somebody and then cut. Mm-hmm. You have to wait until they debut before you can bid on them. So that kind of takes out uh, the element of sort of preemptive – adding guys who you think might be might be about to get called up so if, if we want a guy like that we do kind of have to draft them mm-hmm. if we want to get them at a, at a discount but uh you know i mean we're, we're going for this thing yeah. like I, I think we're gonna be oh yeah really trying to construct the best roster we can without going too overboard on on stashing guys and and playing the waiting game and the upside game yeah, so that, that waiting game will kill you right yeah. and, I, and i love especially what you did last year on our stake league, that anticipation game where you're predicting call-ups and getting guys for a buck a week before they would go for 25-30 in another league. Right, so yeah. I, I mean, it, We can't really play that. In this that league. would be a big advantage of ours if that was something we could do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, that said, I mean, like this week's Farm Futures kind of lays out some guys that maybe we can grab uh, with, a better, with a pretty solid idea of, the general range when they might debut and and with those last two or three spots on the roster you know you might as well grab a, a stash just because you're, you're probably not gonna get a, a very useful big leaguer at that point yeah I, I definitely agree with you and you know draft champions was a different story because they're 50 50 man rosters no in-season pickups uh so i was stashing youngsters left and right but this format it's all about format with young players and uh, like in Stake League too, I have Blake Snell, a couple of the young guys, Max Kepler, but that's going to be a situation where it's going to be walking a fine line having to stash Snell. I get off to a rough start. Uh, we saw Noah Syndergaard dropped in that league last year before his call-up. Waiting, playing that game, the stash game can be troublesome, but if you're just anticipating in a league that allows you to pick up minor leaguers before they're promoted, uh that you can really separate yourself and really get it, uh, get yourself out ahead of the pack, even if you you know maybe didn't draft the best team in the auction or draft. But James, we'll look at your Super Two article here. Good stuff. Uh, explaining MLB service time rules here, and let's just start with the very the very basics here. At three years of MLB service time before players arbitration eligible. Super 2 exemption status is in play. If a player has fewer than three years of service time, but uh, but more than two, and they rank within the top 22% of all two-year players in terms of service time, then that player will become arbitration eligible. Can you explain to me exactly what else factors into this? You say it's a very inexact science, but what are the kind of general parameters in terms of <clears throat> Super 2 rules here? So last year, the cutoff for Super 2 status was two years and 130 days of MLB service time. And now, like, 
this is players. So I mean, like last year, the guys that were became Super Two uh, players last year were guys that debuted, you know, over two years ago. So it's not like the the players that came up last year. We won't know whether they're Super Two guys uh, for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, it falls kind of you know two years. One thirty was last year. Two years. Uh, 133 was two years ago, uh, 2122, 2139. So it's definitely a pretty general range there. Uh, Kind of a general rule of thumb if a team calls up a prospect prior to July, that player has a pretty good chance of being awarded Super 2 status. So if a team's playing that Super 2 game, uh, they'll obviously have done you know, a lot of kind of following how many players have been called up and how many players they expect to be called up. So they'll probably have a pretty solid idea of when that cutoff's going to come. But if they want to be be safe and, and avoid that Super 2 issue uh, and, and avoid paying an extra year of arbitration, then they'll wait till, to, till July to call a guy up. And so that it's kind of two different camps of prospects here. Like, I mean, I think there's definitely some prospects where the team just is not going to really factor in super two status, uh, especially with, with pitchers. I don't think that that's as much of a consideration, uh, big market teams that are in win now mode. I don't think that that's much of a consideration. Uh, but there's, there's definitely some, a certain category of prospects where if you're going to call a guy up in like mid June, and he might be playing, like occupying a part-time role. You might as well just kind of wait till uh, you're, you're sure that the Super Two deadline's passed, and mm-hmm. wait, wait a couple weeks there. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys are the guys that are highlighted here for, for potential Super Two considerations. Are, are big name prospects who we expect to kind of debut at some point in the middle of the season, and it just kind of offers a kind of a, a rubric for how Super 2 might impact when we see these guys. Yeah, it's very, very good and very helpful when, when speculating on, on these prospects for 2016 especially. Can you, just taking it back to last year real quick, before we touch on some of these guys, we'll, we'll get through most of them, but Chris Bryant, last year they waited a couple weeks to bring him up. I think maybe some people are thinking, you know, oh, you know, Jose Barrios could be up in late April. Uh, some of these other prospects, maybe they're <laughs> mid to late April as, as kind of as a target date. But what was – was there anything different about Brian's case? So, right. So there's two things I touched on in the article. The first is the, the Super 2 issue, which uh, is the more complicated one, and that involves uh, the team having to pay the player an extra year of arbitration. The – issue that the Cubs were cognizant of with Bryant last year and that might affect guys like Barrios this year is just that getting that seventh year of team control. Now, if you remember, like, the the Braves brought up Jason Hayward on opening, like, to start the year when he was a rookie. The Marlins did the same with Jose Fernandez when he was a rookie. That means that, I mean, those guys proved that they were ready to be up, but that cost those teams a full year of control with those guys. So, Mm -hmm. If they had just waited a couple weeks, uh, they would have gotten them for seven years instead of six. Uh, according to the CBA, players are entitled to free agency after six or more years of Major League service time. And a year of service time is defined as 172 days on a Major League roster. However, the typical season lasts about 183 days. 
you kind of do the math working backwards from the end of the season, 172 days. This year, the date is April 15th, when a team can call up a player and gain that extra year of control. So, you know, this, it's only like 11 days from the start of the season, so it's not going to be the determining factor of whether you draft a guy or not. Like, all the guys are kind of list here are guys that are probably going to get drafted in, in deeper leagues. Um, maybe not Cody Reed or Sean Manaya, but I, I do think those guys could be up pretty soon. Jose Barrios, to me, and A.J. Reed are kind of the top two guys. I, I have them listed in order of how I have them ranked on, on my top 200, but A.J. Reed and Jose Barrios are probably the top two guys to keep an eye on with regard to getting that extra year of control because, you know, Barrios, we've, we've kind of talked about that at length before, how he's probably one of their two or three best starting pitchers right now. He'll be up soon. I just, I, I can't, for the life of me, envision a scenario where the Twins go a month or two with Tommy Malone uh, or Ricky Nolasco in that rotation while Barrios is at AAA. That just would defy all logic. Yeah, you said several times that he's, he's quite possibly their best starter right now. Yeah, I think... You know, you could argue Kyle Gibson or Urban Santana, but just based on track record, if you wanted to. But you know, to me, <laughs> to me, it's it's got to be Barrios, mm-hmm. and I think that this is a team that should have aspirations of winning the division this year. They have enough talent. I mean, they have they're going to have some of the toughest decisions in terms of big league cuts coming out of camp. I mean, they, they have a really talented twenty five man. They have plenty of almost ready prospects in the minor leagues. So this is a team that should be trying to win the division this year, keeping Barrios down for more than the you know two turns through the rotation that it would take to get that extra year of control would just be completely nonsensical to me. So I, I'd look for him to be up in mid to late April once they get that extra year of control. The A.J. Reed situation's a little less cut and dry, I think, depending on what they end up doing with with Tyler White and John Singleton. White, not on the 40-man roster, so, I mean, it, it does look like he's probably earned a job, though, so they're probably going to add him then. And at that point, you're not going to use that 40-man spot just to get, like, two weeks of a guy mm-hmm. while you're waiting for to get that extra year from Reed. That said, I also think, you know, a case could be made that maybe... It, it gets to a point where A.J. Reed at first base and Tyler White at D.H. is, you know, at least for, for some of the at-bats at D.H. Yeah, out right yeah might, might be their, their most optimal deployment. And, and Jonathan Singleton really doesn't factor in there for me. So, you know, maybe maybe Reed's up as soon as April 15th comes, regardless of what Tyler White's doing, and, and they just kind of do a D.H. first base thing with those two guys. So uh, those would be the top two guys to, to think about with getting that extra year of control. It's interesting. I want to know just personally, do you have a beef at all with, with these CBA rules in terms of gaining extra year control? I know a lot of people have worked, you know, a lot of people with the Chris Bryant thing last year, like, you know, this is silly. The guy's clearly earned a job at a camp. He, he deserves to be on. But we've talked about how the, the MLB Players Union is the best in, in sports. Uh, and I know a lot of players aren't happy about this. Do you personally think this is something that, is kind of arbitrary and, and should be changed when the next CBA uh, is put together? Well, they've always operated in a way that uh, 
you know, the, the population of the players union used to be so, it used to skew a lot older. Like not, now we're in kind of an age where the best players on most teams are under 30 and some of them are under 25. And the way the CBA is set up right now is set up to award players for past accomplishments instead of awarding players for current accomplishments. Mm -hmm. So you have guys coming up, you know, Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom, being like the best or second best, third best player on their team and getting paid less than a million dollars a year because of the situation that's in place. Uh, That's a bigger issue to me than, I mean, I, I definitely don't think that the, there shouldn't be a thing like it be being defined as 172 days on a major league roster. Shouldn't it just be defined as however many days are in the season? You know, like it's it. There's no reason for it there to be all this like little gray area and kind of wiggle room on stuff like this. Uh, The super two thing. I mean, in the current situation, I don't really have a problem with that. But this whole year of control Mm -hmm. thing. A guy should be able to break camp with his team if he's in yeah. a job without it hurting. Like, they, if you want to do, you know, just give him seven years and let Chris Bryant break camp with the team, or, yeah. or give, uh, you know, the Twins seven years of Jose Barrios and let him break camp in the rotation. I mean, I don't, I don't really see an issue with that. I have, I have a bigger issue with the way that the pay structure is set up, where these yeah. players could, you know, Jacob Degrom or Garrett Cole could give their teams like four years of, of Cy Young caliber pitching, then blow out their shoulder and never get that payday. From yeah, that, that is. So, and um, you know that's going to happen soon. Yeah. And, and it has happened before. Yeah, or like, or I would say Jose Fernandez needs another Tommy John. Yeah, exactly. And never, never gets, never gets paid. paid. So uh, that, that to me is kind of a bigger issue. But, you know, for fantasy purposes, we, we just got to work with what we have. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that is probably the bigger issue. But the year control thing, I just feel like it's bad for the game because, aside from you know the the World Series, what's the biggest day of the year for baseball? It's opening day. Yeah, I mean, it's such a long season. People kind of and get bored, but on opening day, people want to see those young stars. And like, I I want to be able to applaud a team like the Marlins or the Braves for taking the best team they have yeah, like to camp. opening day without the caveat that those decisions were both pretty stupid. Like from exactly. a business sense, they shouldn't have done that. But I, I want to say, hey, good job by you guys for, for making sure that you had the best team with you on opening day. Yeah, and if you're out at a game on opening day with maybe a more casual baseball player, they're saying, hey, where's this hot rookie I've been hearing so much about? Oh, they're keeping him down for yeah. a couple of weeks so they can get an extra year of control. Then that looks bad on the team. and uh, It's just smart business, but it's just uh, it doesn't look good on any side, really, of the, the coin. So I don't. Uh, I do kind of hope they, they reevaluate that in uh, the coming years. Let's talk about another guy who could be affected by the rules affecting uh, extra year of control, Julio Urias, because the, the Dodgers have had so many injuries in the rotation, Michael Bolsinger now out of the equation. And I heard that it, at Urias's last minor league outing, most of the Dodgers' brass was there taking a look, mm-hmm. seeing if he'd made a, some, some adjustments since he kind of had some struggles uh, at big league camp, what do you think we see Urias? So, I think he needs to be <clears throat> mentioned in this part of the article and not the Super 2 part because strategically, I think it would make a lot of sense if the Dodgers think that he is 
big league ready or close to big league ready, or at least better than Carlos Frias or Michael Bolsinger, big league ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would make sense to get his innings early on in the season. You know, you're probably going to get 100. Yeah, use those bullets. You're going to get like 120 innings from this year. Do you want them now while half of your pitchers are on the DL? Or do you want to see if they end up being necessary later in the season when you're probably healthier? I think it makes Buy sense. Buy some time. We yeah. have Ryu, uh, Brandon McCarthy. Right. All those guys. I think if, if they think he's ready in mid-April or early May, I think you put him in the rotation, let him pitch till he gets to that pitch limit. Then you can shut him down. Maybe, maybe he goes to the AFL, and you know, maybe he goes to winter ball or something like that. But you get all the innings you can from him in the big league rotation while you allow guys like Hyunjin Ryu and Brandon McCarthy and Frankie Matas and Brett Anderson possibly later on in the season to get healthy, and then they join and into the ranks, and then maybe if Jose De Leon come up, it just seems silly not to use. Furious when you're at your most pressing time of need right now. Yeah, I'm with you. It's something where I feel like the Dodgers may consider it. Yeah. I mean, making it the last minute switch. I'm saying right now, Zach Lee or, or Frias. I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I think you use them up not only when you, you really need it, but also you know who knows what he's gonna if the stuff's gonna be there when he's over 100 innings, and you know maybe he's wearing down a little bit with fatigue and all. But real quick before we move on, you talked about AJ Reed, and one of our coworkers asked if you know Tyler White looking like he's going to be a guy who is going to maybe win the job. Shouldn't he be added to the Astros' top top prospect, top ten, uh, top ten list in that organization? Uh, what do you think on that? Going to make that change? No, I look. It's it's a cool story. Um, you know, he's he's a twenty five year old corner infielder who hasn't played in the big leagues and doesn't hit for much power. So it's it's nice that he's got a great approach and everything and uh, you know he could be could be an OBP league stud uh, if given like a full time job. But this Astros system is is pretty loaded with guys who profile as either mid rotation pitchers or everyday players at, at more scarce positions. I mean, nobody in a in a dynasty in a true dynasty league where you can keep a guy forever. Nobody's gonna trade like Daz Cameron for Tyler White. I, I don't mm-hmm. think, unless they're just desperate to try to compete this season. I mean, I I don't. In in other systems, I'd put Tyler White in the top ten probably, but the Astros just are deep enough to me, and they have enough uh, they have enough talent that I trust a bit more long term than, than Tyler White in that system. And, you know, we've seen tons of guys like this. That these these guys who are twenty five years old, uh, putting up big numbers in the upper levels of the minor leagues, as some of the older players in those leagues, and then they come up to the big leagues and they're just kind of, you know, mid middling or mediocre. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it shouldn't come as, as a surprise if Tyler White's like that. And if he hits, you know, what if he, what if he just gives you kind of like Joe Maurer production while he's playing for the, the Astros. Is that really a guy that you're going to rank ahead of a guy like David Paulino with number two or number three starter upside long-term or uh, Das Cameron or Joe Musgrove who could be a number three starter as soon as late late this year? Uh, not not really for me. I mean, I think if you, you should be able to try to find a guy like Tyler White off waivers in shallower leagues. Uh, you should be able to find him 
uh, in the reserve draft and deeper leagues. I mean, it's just not that scarce of a commodity. Yeah, I'm with you. And I want to just clear that up because he is a game that's getting some buzz this spring. But I, I think it's <clears throat> wise to, to rein it in a little bit, give a little bit of a, a more sobering take for long term. I mean, yeah, he could maybe come in and have some success early, but I don't think, especially compared to a guy like Reed, you have in your top 10, kind of night and day in terms of long term upside. Yeah, I mean, I was, you got to look at the position. You got to yeah, look at exactly. the age. I mean, it's not. You can't and just, fantasy categories, powers. Yeah, you can't just look at the slash line and the fact that he might break camp with the team. His last slash line in the minors at AAA is pretty gaudy. You also got to look at the the places they're playing at AAA. I mean, if you hit seven or eight homers at Lancaster, that doesn't really tell me anything. You know, exactly. uh, he might hit five all season in the big league. You know, it looks like Reed is going to start in the minors. But, man, I, I went back and watched, because I saw it mentioned in an article, went back and watched his at-bat against Scherzer from March 8th, and he fouled off eight pitches. <coughs> it was insane. It was a 13-pitch at-bat, fouled off eight, and just looked really good as far as there just was not a lot of the you know, front movement. It was really steady. He was catching up to everything. Uh, it really has good coverage of the zone, it looked like, and, uh, not having that big, big, massive leg kick that you kind of see sometimes with he, some other power. Hit. He's got the he's got the kind of meaty face I look for in my first baseman. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think he, he meaty looks face and really nice base. Yeah, I the the yeah, bat that stood out for me from watching him in the in the spring training was he he was up against Lucas Giolito and Giolito got him swinging on just an illicit changeup, but uh, yeah, it. it I mean, he that was a, that was a fun bat to watch. Let's talk about a couple other guys who not only have the extra year of control considerations to think about, but also team context. Both both teams have been slow in promoting prospects, especially pitching prospects. Blake Snell, the Rays, Tyler Glass, now the Pirates. And I mentioned that I have Snell in in our single season stake league and. Playing that waiting game could be risky, especially given the fact that the Rays have been cautious, slow, slow to bring them up, and they have a ton of other options. Pirates don't have quite as many options. Uh, I expect to see both of these guys up, but is it going to be before July? Either. Uh, <clears throat> I think Snell's up for sure before July, uh, one way or another. I think he makes his first start in the big league rotation this year before Alex Cobb returns to the rotation. So he's just going to be looking for an injury, which isn't. I mean, we look at the guys in that rotation: Smiley, Matt Moore, specifically. It wouldn't be surprising if, if one of those guys got hurt. Uh, wouldn't be all that surprising if you know through five or six starts they decide Snell might be the better option than Rasmus Ramirez. Uh, I know you're you're high you're high on Ramirez. I I like him too as kind of a late round guy, but. You know, Snell's Snell's just a better better pitcher. He's got better stuff, so that wouldn't be surprising. And and, and he's he's just big league ready. And the, the control, like we've talked about in the past, isn't what it might look like based on his minor league numbers. But just overall, he's he's ready. Uh, Glass now is kind of a little bit of a different story. I don't think he's quite ready. And you know, it, it'll be interesting to kind of see what the guys at the back of that rotation do for the Pirates in the first month or so, because, you know, you've got uh, Juan Nicasio, who's just kind of been one of the talks of spring training. If, if he were to win a rotation spot and, and 
bring what he's done in the spring into the regular season, that would be pretty impressive. Uh, you got um, Ryan Vogelsong and Jeff Locke. I mean, look, I think Glassnow's probably a better pitcher than those guys long-term, but it wouldn't be crazy to look up in like mid-May and have Jeff Locke sitting there with like a 3-6 ERA or something like that, or Ryan Vogelsong with a 3-8. With a Three seven five ERA and just kind of side. Searage can only do so much. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it's Glass now. I think is going to really have to earn that nod. Mm-hmm. Like I think that they showed last year with the way they handled him, even with guys like Charlie Morton and Jeff Locke just bringing their gas can to the mound every every five days. They were still willing to roll with those guys over Glass now. I think they'll do the same this year until Glass now really shows he's ready. Yeah, that's. It's going to be an interesting situation with both guys. Uh, yeah, Snell. I mean, he could he could very well you know, take Erasmus, but I am high on Erasmus though. Nice outing yesterday. Three hits, one earned run over six innings. Uh, missed a lot of bats. I am hoping. I have a lot of shares. So I'm selfishly hoping he holds on. Uh, but Matt Moore's looked really good too this spring. So uh, Snell's going to force his way up. Just a matter of. You know, who falls behind uh, among those back-end starters there. Real quick, not a guy you, you touched on here, but we're, we have a, a spring training game on in the office. The Brewers teeing off on Danny Duffy right now. It's 9-1. to one. Eric Young Jr. just hit a homer. Chris Carter had one before. Don't Neither of those guys. <coughs> Keon Broxton's a guy who's getting buzzed. I just want to get your take on him because uh, he, I think he was acquired from the Pirates, I believe, this offseason. Not somebody I know a ton about, but could you maybe shed some light on what he could maybe bring if he's in a regular role with Milwaukee this season? He's a guy that I've been getting some places. Uh, you know, I was able to get him a lot cheaper a couple weeks ago than, than you'd be able to get him right now in deeper leagues just because it is kind of looking like he will open the year. As the, as the Brewers' starting center fielder, I mean, I see just as much case – to move Keon Broxton into the Brewers' top ten as I do to move Tyler White into the Astros' top ten. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, they're the same kind of player, basically, to me. Guys that are going to keep a seat, a spot warm for somebody else. You know, mm-hmm. they're not probably not long-term options. <clears throat> Broxton, you know what what White has in, in on-base percentage potential. Broxton kind of has in speed. I mean, he kind of really resembles. Uh, Dexter Fowler type of type of center fielder, really long and lanky. Uh, you know, depending on where he's going to hit in that order, he could even become useful in in mixed leagues just for that speed. And he's shown pop before. I mean, he, he had a 19 homer year back in 2012, 15 homers in 2014. So, you know, could be kind of a you know a Michael Taylor type of package. <laughs> You know, if he gets every day at bats, and that's that's not a lock, but with like Kirk Neuenheis basically being his top competition now that Ryan Liriano's on the shelf, it, it is looking like he might start the year off with, with semi regular at bats. That's interesting. Yeah, definitely. I'll be keeping an eye on because even if you know that average hurts you, if he's doing enough home runs, maybe uh, I mean, maybe 20, 20 steals. Is that possible if he holds on to that job? For oh yeah. I think four if he gets 500 plate appearances, I think he'll get 20 steals, no problem. Yeah, and so I think he can stomach uh, some batting average drain if he's giving you that kind of production. What about Trevor's story? He's the guy I know you've been getting a lot of shares of this spring, and I would think he's done enough, especially 
with Jose Reyes away from the team, it only makes sense that they bring Trevor Story. But that organization has, you know, been budget conscious in the past quite a bit. I mean, that's putting it nicely. Uh, any fear, as far as you're concerned, that he could could start the year in the minors? You know, I mentioned him in this article just on the off chance that that happens. But that would be really puzzling if they were to go that that route with him, especially considering, like, this isn't a uh, Chris Bryant-level prospect. Like, for fantasy purposes, he's awfully interesting because of what he does, power, speed, uh, home ballpark, course field. But just in the grand scheme of things in, in baseball, this isn't like a cornerstone prospect that you should be worried about service time issues with, especially when you got a guy like Brendan Rodgers who figures to take his job in a few years anyways. So uh, just given their other options, given how pathetic their organization has been in recent years, uh, it just just bring bring your best team to to the to the table on opening yeah. day. I mean Trevor Story, it like losing a year of control on Trevor Story is not gonna doom your friend. Yeah, especially you're looking what, like six years down the road. Yeah. Are we really gonna do that with a guy like Also, that? yeah, he's he's not like I mean he's see in six years, what's he gonna be? Uh, I think he's like twenty three maybe. I mean it's not let's see. Yeah, yeah he's twenty three, so it's not like he's some twenty year 20-year-old phenom who you're mm-hmm. desperately going to be wanting to hold on to that, that extra year and just bring him up right now. Exactly. Now, I want to talk about some, some more guys that you outlined in the Super 2, the first part of the article. Lucas Giolito, top pitching prospect in the minor leagues, really impressed this spring. It sounds like they expect him to be up sooner rather than later. <coughs> but given the fact that, you know, he's such a marquee prospect – um, of course, they're going to want to gain that extra year control, but Super 2 factors in as well. Do you think he's a guy that, uh, even with high aspirations for the team this season, he could be the guy that, even if he's knocking at the door, talent suggests he's ready, they could just keep down for, for quite a bit, a bit of time this year? I think it'll probably be more about what's happening at the big league level, when depending on when he gets called up. If you have... You know, Joe Ross is kind of interesting. He's, he plays an interesting role in this because Ross might be capped at less than a full season's worth of innings this year, or at least managed that way. And if Tanner Roark is holding his own in the, the fifth spot in the rotation, the Nationals might just wait for an injury to, to open up Giolito's spot. Otherwise, maybe they just bring him up right around the All-Star break. And... You know, maybe they they do something with Roark or Ross in the bullpen, something like that, just to kind of manage innings. I mean, there's a lot of ways that that this can play out. I think that just given his timetable, Super Two status might come into play there. I, I just want to caution against thinking that he's going to be up in April or May. I'm not saying that can't happen, but you shouldn't draft him with the expectation that you're going to be able to slot him into your your rotation in May. Yeah, I had him in my 350 initially, but uh, he does. I'm I mean, him out. he has the upside. Like you look at like a guy like Julio Urias and, and Lucas Giolito, they both could throw 100 innings in the big leagues this year. It just might be at completely different parts of the season, and yeah. you might get 
the same or better production from Giolito. You're just going to have to wait a bit longer. So I, I don't. I think those guys should be valued very similarly, uh, as long as you are willing to stash him. Because like with with Urias, theoretically, you can just in a single season league you can just cut him in July and then grab a replacement. Whereas Giolito, you might not be slotting him in until July. It's a very good point. Friend of the program, Mike Chess, hits us up on Twitter with some some Phillies questions from time to time. Phillies outfield questions. I'm pretty sure he's a Nick Williams dynasty owner. <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> well, me, but that's a damn shame. <laughs> but Nick Williams, I mean, even with the injury to Aaron Altair, I mean, just the lack of talent in the current outfield picture, uh, there's, there's going to be no reason for this team where they're at to bring Williams up. Maybe before August, September, am I right? Uh, I think Williams and J.P. Crawford could both be up in July if they have proven themselves ready and if there's a pretty obvious opening at the big league level. I just, I mean, a Super 2 should definitely factor in with these guys because the Phillies aren't competing. Uh, so you might as well save that money with, with calling these guys up. Williams... You know, he's he's one of the best pure hitters in the minor leagues. And, you know, you look at that that starting outfield, the projected starting outfield. I like Tyler Goodell as kind of like a reserve round pick type of guy in deeper leagues. I mean, Odebel Herrera probably gets drafted in most formats, especially where he'll hit in that lineup. But I don't see any reason to expect Peter Borjos to perform at all at the plate. So... You know, depending on how much they value his defense in a year where they're rebuilding, I don't, I don't see any reason why Nick Williams couldn't replace Borjos, or if Goodell falls flat on his face, then maybe uh, maybe he replaces him. So I, I think there will be an opening for Williams as soon as July, but there's no reason to bring him up before then. Yeah, probably then no reason to really draft him and, and redraft him. No, yeah, I mean, most of the guys... You know, most of the guys I mentioned in the, the Super 2 part of this article are guys that you probably don't have to draft in, in standard leagues. Yeah, that's what the Fab game is for, just because the uncertainty there, yeah, it can be very dangerous if you're using a roster spot and on those guys for so long. I, I do want to I don't want to talk about Josh Bell quickly because he's a guy that I, I took in the reserve round of, of our stake league draft. I'm probably going to cut him. <clears throat> when the the first round of fab rolls through just because you know the more you kind of read about how high they are on John Jaso and the more you kind of look at how Bell and Jaso would complement each other I mean they're they're basically in the exact same boat with righties and lefties so there's not really an obvious platoon there and I think they're just going to be willing to let Jaso kind of you know, go as, as far as he can with that job. I mean, they, they love his his OBP ability. Uh, they've talked about he him at the top off. of the yeah. order. Yeah, so I used to be pretty high on Bell with the idea that he'd be up fairly early for them uh, in a year where they're trying to contend. But unless Jason gets hurt or really struggles, I think Bell might be down a lot longer than we've all been kind of hoping for. Yeah, I can see that. He was a guy who took in draft champions, but... Um, I mean, in that in a league like that. Yeah, then you can stash, but not in, in standard leagues. Anything else you want to add as far as Super 2 guys or anything else with, with any other player that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, just quickly on, like, I think I think Cody Reed and Sean Manaya 
Uh, I didn't mention Jorge Lopez, but he kind of falls into this group too. Just kind of under the radar, top 100 prospects who don't have experience at AAA, but, or, well, Lopez does, but Reed and I do not have experience at AAA, I don't believe. And just given where their teams are at and how well they performed in spring training, I think you're going to see both of these guys up a lot sooner than, than we've been thinking. I, I think you look at the back two spots of those two rotations, and it's just really kind of abysmal right now. And Reed outperformed pretty much every young pitcher in, in Red's camp this year. Yeah. And so I, and the way that I've been hearing Brian Price talk about him, I would expect him to be up, if not in late April, then maybe early May. Uh, Manaya, the A's are, the A's are kind of like the opposite of the Rays with how they handle pitching prospects. Mm-hmm. They like to get them up to the big leagues and, and use those bullets against big league hitters. And I think that's, I think, I think with a guy like Manaya, especially just given his kind of like, track record of injury history and stuff just get him up there i mean you're you're starting guys like chris bassett i mean i'm trying to don't remember who some of the guys they're rolling with at the back of their rotation i mean i think jesse jesse hans, jesse hans like their number two starter yeah, blasted um, yesterday too yeah i mean yeah destroyed. you got chris bassett slotted in you got you know kendall grayman rich hill jesse Hahn. of those four guys you know at least one's going to need to be replaced in May. So I think, I think you got to look at Sean Manaya as a guy that gets up significantly later. Yeah, I like Manaya. We saw him in the fall. He looked, looked really good as far as I was concerned. Reed is very interesting too. Yeah, I mean, they signed Big Pasta, Alfredo Simon, the number four spot. Uh, they're hoping John Moskett's going to be number four. But <coughs> Tim Melville, the fallback option. I mean, none of those guys should keep Cody Reed. Well, and um, yeah, you got. I mean, the, the the Reds have just so many injury issues, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to get guys back. I mean, John Lamb's going to come back. I kind of wonder, wonder if Michael Lorenzen might just be ticketed for the bullpen regardless yeah. of when he's healthy. He's got a UCL injury. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, Homer Bailey, who the heck knows. I, I, think, I think you're going to see Cody Reed hang out in that rotation for a good part of the season. That'll do it for the prospect portion of the podcast. We are going to grade latest hip-hop artists on the 20 to 80 scouting scale, rating the five tools we've established uh, for evaluating hip-hop artists, lyricism, flow, longevity, impact, swag, and we'll be giving out an overall grade. Some recent artists we've graded out, Lil Wayne, Slick Rick, Too Short, uh, Pharaoh Monch, Juvie, Master P today, The Last Dawn, I mean... Ghetto D really kind of changed my life. I miss my homies. I mean, that was really kind of one of what kind of turned me on to Master P because, I, you know, there was, there was the video for it. It was really a big mainstream hit. Then I got to digging into, you know, Ice Cream Man, some of his previous albums, and, of course, followed him from there on out. And fizzled out now. You know, he's kind of, I think, especially with Make Him Say Um, some people like to point to that track and kind of dog him, but... Some high grades for me, as far as Master P goes. Uh, <clears throat> Ghetto D, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I think, you know, in terms of hip-hop albums that I listened to for, you know, months straight. Uh, really early in my Yeah, early in my, like, hip-hop listening days, Ghetto D was one of the first albums that I really kind of knew back to front. And 
uh, yeah, I, I didn't follow him as close. I didn't do as much kind of recon on, on pre ghetto D uh, material and not not much in terms of the post last dawn uh, material. Although you didn't did, have ghetto Bill. I, I did. I did uh, name a, a fantasy football team the last dawn uh, recently, which was which was, that was excellent. Um, a hologram cover. Yeah, I mean, if, it's too bad that it's too bad that album covers can't be one of the categories because <laughs> the last on is gonna easy. Age. I think we might incorporate that into impact, <laughs> which we both have as uh, elite tools. But let's start with lyricism, though. I mean, we'll start with the bad news first. <laughs> and we both got thirties here. Listen, as much as I like Master P, and yeah, I did go back and not only. Ice Cream Man but the, the early True albums which were really good but the lyrics were never really up to snuff especially when at the same time I'm listening to Wu-Tang Clan I mean he couldn't really hold a candle to him but it's a different it's a different style it, far wasn't, it wasn't about the lyricism with Master no, it uh, kind of funny that we're doing him uh, the week week after we did Too Short who also <laughs> got terrible <laughs> grades for lyricism and awesome grades for flow mm-hmm. uh, yeah I mean the, you just you just have to, if, in order to like Master P's work and even like his best work, you just have to be okay with kind of being along for the ride without nitpicking the lyrics. Yeah, just just go with it. Listen to the tales. It's about it's about the storytelling. Listen to the one, the occasional one-liners and you know the sound effects, <laughs> the, the beat. I mean, that, that's all yeah. you really need. And like as you said, like with Too Short, the lyricist, low lyricism grades. Offset to a large extent by the high flow grades. I got a 70 here. Before we came on, you turned on the, the opening song on Ghetto D. and The title uh, track. title track, yeah. A great song. Of course, a kind of a sample of an Eric B. and Rakim song. But love that song. And he just gets into that flow. Very unique style. And, and we'll get to the impact again, as I mentioned. But... That flow, that, that kind of down south, New Orleans, uh, that little draw in there, really kind of made Master P who he was. And uh, again, I like the, the storytelling, the, the tales of, of drug <laughs> slang. <laughs> it look, it's a different life. That's a life that I don't really know about. I can't really relate to, but at the same time, hearing, hearing about these things is interesting to me. Uh, but the flow with Master P is what really set him apart and really kind of established, you know, of course you don't need great lyricism to be uh, a super popular hip-hop artist, but he kind of set the bar and really put the South back on the map in the hip-hop scene, maybe on the map, period. Yeah. Uh, his, I mean, it's it's just not a, it's not a dupe duplicatable flow mm-hmm. it's it's kind of just very unique to him <clears throat> and just not not something i would try to like don't try this at home you know like it, if you're if you're an aspiring southern rapper don't don't try to bite masterpiece no. flow i mean it's it's uh it's kind of one of a kind yeah don't try to bite it's, it's also yeah one of a kind and just that time in history, you know, kind of fade was favorable uh, environment for him to come up through the game. So I got a 70, you got a 65. Longevity, I got a 55, you got a 45. 
you know, that window, for me, it really was you ghetto deed to last on, then only God can judge me, ghetto postage. I mean, by that, by only God can judge me, uh, he was really falling off at that point. And he really kind of faded away, especially as his son rose to prominence and they got a Disney TV show or whatever. But I remember him having Ghetto Bill in like 2004. And you consider the, the pre-Ghetto D era up to that, uh, I think it was 2004-ish, but uh, that's, that's a pretty long window. So I got to give him a uh, above average to plus grade there. I guess I uh, gave him less credit for some of those albums, like I think. And they weren't good. I think Ice Cream, uh, Ghetto D, Last Dawn. Those are good. That's kind of like the, the window of the run that I'm willing to kind of give him credit for. I give him a 45 for longevity. We kind of talked about Impact already, but both 80s here. Again, Master P himself, but then No Limit Records really kind of led to the rise of Cash Money Records. And really a lot of the, I don't want to say trap, but a lot of that Southern kind mm-hmm. of, kind of a lot of bass, a lot of, uh, a lot of catchy hooks, and I really think he paved the way for a lot of artists that we see down south right now. And swag, I got a sixty. I've been handing out high swag grades. You got a seventy here. Well, I, I, like I, I, I just want to impact really quick. Like the amount, like this is sort of uh, kind of akin to sort of what we've talked about before with guys like uh, Fifty Cent and uh, DMX, where during their prime, like, they were just, they were it, kind of, you know. And, like, you have, like, think about the amount of No Limit music you listened to and that you would have, that you would have literally never listened to without, like, yeah. the album Ghetto D, you know. Yeah. So that, to me, that's just, that's really impactful. Yeah, and you opened the door for a guy like Mac, who I really like. <coughs> free Mac, by the way. See murders, free see murders as well. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think... Well, you, don't, you don't need to freeze him. No, don't freeze him. <laughs> I've seen the night surveillance. He probably video. deserves what he's, what he's dealing with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we can say free all these guys. It's probably best for society. <laughs> Keep most of them locked up. Swag, again, 60 here. You got a 70. Look, I like Masterpiece Swag, but it's very 90s swag. Once the new millennium hit, uh, that swag was dated. Look, he had a gold tank come onto a basketball court <laughs> in a music video. And he uh, tried out for, like, the, the Hornets. He had actual game. Actual yeah, game. like, he would have probably been the best if, if all the rappers got together and, and, you know, had a one-on-one basketball tournament. A, how much money would you pay to see that? Oh, and, my God. And B, like, does anyone hang with Master P? I mean, I think... I think Cameron might have had some scholarship offers out of high school. Uh, I don't know if Method Man or Red Man. I think one of those guys was, was a good baller. Keith uh, Snake was a good football player. I mean, there, there's definitely some guys in hip hop that that could ball, but Master P probably the best, probably the best basketball player of all. Yeah, Young Thug, I know he can throw down. Master P actually did have an NBA tryout, which is crazy to think about now. But, yeah, I mean, again, I think the when the new millennium came and he became, you know, he kind of had dad swag after, like, mm-hmm. 2003 or so. Not really the swag I want to really buy into, but 
swag was still there nonetheless. I got a 60, you got a 70. I got a 60 overall grade, so uh, I have him behind Slick Rick and Wayne, ahead of guys like Juvenile, Ferromanch, DMX even. Uh, I think that's fair, just given, given the career he put together, but uh, not a guy who's really remembered fondly. I have him, yeah, I mean, I have, I'm surprised to see I have him ahead of DMX, I think. I'd By, uh, by only five points. Yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's very, very influential rapper. I mean, if you were to just say, like, of, you know, from the late 90s, like, who was, who was the most impactful hip-hop artist, I think you could make a legitimate case that it was Master P. Yeah, I'm with you. No limit. I still want some No Limit gear. I would really love some, but that'll do it for us, guys. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review the podcast if you got good things to say. Todd Zola and Paul Sporer will be with you guys tomorrow. the story of Harry's. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. Then one day, an ordinary guy got ripped off buying razors. He was so fed up that he and his best friend started a company to fix shaving. They called it Harry's. By taking less profit and selling online, Harry's can offer quality blades for less. You can even get Harry's 5-Blade Razor and Shave Gel for free when you sign up. Just cover shipping. Click or go to harrys.com and enter code RAZOR at checkout. That's RAZOR, R-A-Z-O-R. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.